good to have you back in Charlotte, back with us this weekend. We miss you. <laughs> when we think about this this book and this passage um, primarily today, and just kind of what's been taking place in the book of Galatians, one of the things I think is just important to, to kind of understand is, like, in, in popular kind of culture, if you were to sit down and talk with people, and you were to explain, like, what Christianity is all about, and, and how Christians should, maybe you say how they would live, if you were to do that, like, they would say, sometimes you would hear people say, like, it's almost like a form of slavery. Like, it seems like Christianity is about rules, 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 you know. And sometimes you hear that, and, and really, though, what we've been learning is it's about sonship. And some of the reason that we hear about it's only about rules, 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 some of those reasons are because maybe Christianity is presented wrongly. And some of it is also, of course, that God has holy standards, and, and as, as God's people, as sons, provided with the Spirit, we have a high calling for how we should live. But it's not as, God, as if we were slaves to God. We have a high calling of that because of the, the wonderful like grace of God to us that He would allow us to understand what it means to live a life uh, for His glory and for our good. And it's hard for us to, in the world, it's hard for them to totally understand that. But I think we as Christians sometimes struggle with, we think God's like this kind of beat us down kind of God that's always telling us what to do and what not to do and just is angry with us and He's almost like a, a taskmaster that's just beating us down all the time. And we don't really fully understand this idea of sonship. So today we're going to look at that and just, again, just to say as Christians, we are not slaves, we are sons. And I think it's important to just kind of to say that over and over and remind us of that reality. Um, one person wrote this, We do not serve God as slaves who must satisfy the demands of our Master, but because they are, we are children, we want to please our Father. That's a, that, that's a total different motivation. It's out of what He has done for us, our Father. It's like someone who really genuinely understands or has a caring, loving Father, and they say, I want to, I want to do what, what they would want me to do out of an overflow of my heart because He's loved me so much, not because I'm afraid of Him. And so I think it's just important to make that distinction. Once a missionary explained this reality to Indian converts, and when they finally understood, one of the converts said, my grandfather said, it is better for a son to obey his father out of love than out of fear of being punished. That is how God wants us to obey Him, out of love. And so we've been kind of been thrown on us over and over and helping us see this reality. And so I think it's just important as we look at this today, just kind of thinking through it, is the church has this great privilege of knowing Christ, of having access to God, having relationship with Him. It's a powerful thing, the Spirit working in us. And we have these wonderful benefits, and we need to remind ourselves of that because it's so easy to fall back into things that are not glorifying to God. Now, just think about this just as we're in this passage. In, in, if you think back in chapter 1, through really 2.21, what happens was Paul's argument is this. He speaks of his own conversion, how he was in, in bondage and really God set him free. We, we learn about that, how, how Christ came to him and called him to himself. We also learned about, like in Paul's argument for saying, look, embrace sonship and embrace what God has for you. The second thing he says is that, that the Spirit worked among you. And, and his point in that was chapter 3, where he says the Spirit's working in your heart, and that's evidence that you are a part of God's people. It's not based on the law, it's not based on your works, those things, it's God's Spirit moving in your life. 
in chapter 3, 6 through 14, he speaks of like, when he's trying to help them understand that you're sons of God, that you've experienced the work of God, he goes back and says, that's how it's always been. And he goes back in the history of the Bible and the, and the theological basis for all these things. And he says, you remember Abraham? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It is something that God did. God saved Abraham. It was a promise made by God that Abraham could be saved. And then in 3.15 kind of through 4.7, he uses a lot of just life examples. And he'll speak of that, of how even in the world it's done this way. God made this promise and it's going to come to pass that we could be His children through faith in Christ. So today, when he gets into this kind of same theme, he's going to speak on the basis of his personal relationship with these people. And so I just think it's important that you hear that. And this is a, a, someone, John Stott said this, We've been listening to Paul the Apostle, Paul the theologian, and Paul the defender of the faith. But now we're hearing Paul the man, Paul the pastor, and Paul the passionate lover of souls. He moves away from the, the maybe you would say just the heavy theological kind of framework in, in defending the faith kind of thing, and, and then he moves into just really wanting to cultivate their hearts to this reality. It, it might be wise to hear that. Sometimes I think, sometimes maybe if you're on the side of like, theological, robust kind of thinking and everything's an argument, uh, you might say, well, Paul's my buddy. That's how he always is. But he's also this compassionate lover of souls. And he's going to appeal to them on that basis. So I just think it's important that we see this and understand it. And the last thing I would say is we know this as a, as a people. We, we can lean towards... When we, when we read the Bible and, and understand or whatever... There's times, though, we could read it and kind of miss the Gospel and then say, Christianity is just about doing right, being right, acting good. And the dangers of that, of, of creating a system like that, even within our homes are there, where it's just about being, being, being obedient. And it's not really about ever pointing anybody in your family to the Gospel. It's kind of a scary prospect. But I think it happens. It's an easy thing to do because we like to think that in some way, we might could save ourselves. We have to watch that tendency both in our lives as adults and as we raise our children and as we invest in other people. So chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul compares their past religious bondage to their present struggle with falling into this religious bondage presented by the Judaizers. This is kind of an interesting thing. I mean, this is very, it's kind of, it's compelling because what's crazy is Paul's going to say that there are two great dangers. One is to be a complete uh, God-rejecting pagan who's created and made up your gods. Made up all these gods to, that are not, don't even exist. The other danger is to say that Christianity is about doing works to gain acceptance with God. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to put those two together and say these are both dangerous things and they're related. Both of them are salvation by works and both of them will damn you. Now that's kind of crazy because you might read your Bible and say wouldn't it be better to read the Bible and know how to act good? And Paul's over here saying you could go follow pagan religions or read your Bible and try to be really good. And both of those things, if you think those will gain you acceptance with this God, these gods over here or the God of the Bible, you've missed it. Because the Gospel is not about you getting God to accept you by the basis of your own works. 
When you stand before God one day, you can't stand before Him with what you've done and say, this is going to make it. I'm going to get in because of all that I've done. If you do that, you will never, ever experience eternal life. That's kind of shocking. That He would put those two things together here. And so, what He's going to say is, as He's laying this out, He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that were by nature not God's. And so, in your past... When you had no knowledge of God at all, what, was you, what were you enslaved to? All humans are worshipers. All are slaves, to, to, in a sense, where they're all worshiping something. In this world, uh, there's, there's all different kind of things that might be going on. Uh, there, were, there were deities in ancient Greece that people were still holding on to at this period of time. There were... Um, People like studied astrology back then, and so they would watch the signs of the zodiac. They come up with all these things. They they had uh, some even like with the ancient Greece kind of mentality. There, there was a god to Zeus, and so there were things like that going on where they had all these gods. There were also kind of a, a Roman imperial cult worship where in the Roman kind of world they they even worshipped the emperor and all different types of worshiping all of these different false gods. He said, that's what you were doing. Um, one of the things about false gods is, again, it is based upon worldly uh, religion, which world religion is based upon works righteousness. How can we make the God happy? You know, sometimes when you go to different parts of the world or if you just study about it, there'll be places where you could go today where they would have this little crafted uh, God or, or image of the God and they would they'd go and carry food up there to feed the God. They do all these little crazy, like little things. To, they got to feed the God. They got to celebrate this thing. They have to do this, say these things. There's all different things in our world that people still are doing those things. They're still going to these little temples. They're still feeding these gods. They're still serving them. They're still trying to make them happy. They're still afraid that if the crops didn't come this year, we must have really angered the gods. It's very even common today. We need to understand that now. Sometimes for us, I feel like sometimes for us, it's really hard um, because we would say, we don't have many temples around. I mean, surely there's places you could go in cities where there'd be pockets of people where that would go on. But for the most part, we don't really see that as something that we would struggle with. I think our, our culture, though, we have to ask, like, what are we obsessed with? What is our culture spending money on? What are people like denying themselves sleep, money, relationships, God for their obsession? What are those things they're obsessed with? Are they created things? Created by God? Given to us by God? Are they things that, that we've been able to, because we're made in the image of God, build and construct and games that we play? Of course, all of those things can kind of like capture our hearts. Now, how would we say, what, what, is, what makes an idol? An idol is one of those things where we find we think we're more accepted if we do it. We think we're more loved. We feel more at peace. We, we think we're like, we find more joy if we do those things to the point where like maybe even we think at some level it will save my life. It could be money. I mean, there's a lot of things. Sometimes people love the government so much or hope in the government or hope in America. Those kind of things where you kind of put them on this great pedestal things that can rescue us our world is built on that and there's a whole set of rules that you have to live by in order to find fulfillment and things you need to put your money in and sacrifice for to find fulfillment 
And so I just think just to imp- it's important to just get in your mind this struggle is something that we face. Verse 9, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, what is he going to say? You are in bondage, but now you, you're not in bondage anymore. You have come to know the true God. Not these false gods, not these dead gods that don't exist, not these gods that the culture's made up, not these things that people have been in bondage to and they cherish and they love and they think about and dream about. Not those things. You've come to know the true God. He's saying, and here's what happened. Paul went and preached to them. He went and sat down with them and he spoke the truth about God. He would say, there is a God in heaven who created everything. He made it and He calls upon all people everywhere to bow the knee to Him. But you have been a rebel your whole life. You have walked in rebellion. You serve these other gods and you need to renounce them and trust in your only hope. And your only hope is that Christ, the the, the Son of God, came down, became man, lived this life of perfect obedience to the law, and died a death on the cross for you. And all everywhere who will repent and believe this Gospel will be saved. And they're not going to be saved based upon their own merit, but on the merit of Christ. And they have access to God through Him. And they can become sons and they're heirs of God. And it's just important to see that. And so he preaches this gospel to them. But not only that, he's going to speak of this gospel as something, when he's saying this, he says, you come to know God, or rather to be known by God. When the Scripture speaks of being known by God, Jeremiah says this, God says to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. What's he saying? He is saying, I knew you before you knew me. It's, it's, not, it's not just that he um, knew about you. It's not just that he says, I created you. God does create us. There's no question of that. But to know us is tied to an intimate knowledge. It's going to come to a saving kind of fruition, you would say. So before they ever knew God, Before they had ever heard the Gospel message, God knew them. He had set His eyes upon them to bless them. To bring them to saving faith. This is encouraging. Because one of the things that we hope in is it's not just like how much faith I have in God, but that He has set His love on me. He says, I'm going to to know them. I do know them. I will bring them to Myself. It's a very important thing to understand. It's very encouraging to us because we know that if He says, they're Mine, that He will call us to Himself and He will open our eyes to see so that we might believe and understand and come to know the God who has known us from before the foundation of the world. As the verse continues, how can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the worlds whose slaves you want to become once more. And this is again where he's tying those two together. I said that earlier just to bring that in your mind. He is saying, listen, why are you running back to these things? And what he's saying is, these Judaizers are coming in and says it's a works-based righteousness. You can be right with God based upon your own merit. And Paul's saying, this is the same thing you did all of your life. You always thought that you could reach out to the gods and you would find hope in them as you worked your way to them. 
And now you're going to pick this thing up and say, the one true and living God, the way I'm going to be saved by Him, is doing that same thing. And he's saying, why would you go back to these weak and worthless things? Why would you return to false religion? The relationship that we have with God is based by on the promise that God would save us through His Son and nothing else. Why would you run back to that? How could you be so foolish to do so? They were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Sometimes we would say, as we were talking about these gods again, they're sometimes tied to the elements. Water and rain and all of these different things. Fertility. They were tied to all these natural elements to try to, to make good in this life. To do well in this life. And he's saying, how could you go back to these things? They're foolish. They are demonic. They are not from God. They will not satisfy. They will damn you eternally. How could you run back to those things? They're, they're, they are, they're, it's a deception. How could you run back to this demonic deception? Oftentimes with the gods, it's, it's tied to what is Satan doing in this world? He's trying to blind the people so that they would believe and trust in the gods of this world to find fulfillment, hope, salvation, all of those things. Why would you return to that? Do not listen to these false teachers who are trying to lead you astray. Why would you go back to something like this? Where this, 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 this master, this God, this false God is beating you down. Why would you run back to that? Where he's saying, if you don't do good enough, you'll never be accepted. When you've just heard the message that the only way you can be accepted is this loving Father sent His Son so that you might be saved. How could you do that? He's promised you an inheritance not based on what you've done, but what He has done. But man is very easily turned towards those things because we like to think that we've made it our way. What a scary prospect. He is driving this towards them. Now, in verse 10, he says, You observe the days and the months and the seasons and years. There was a whole set, set up of calendar uh, activities. All these things, even within the law, where you would do this on this day and this on that day and this on this day. And he's saying, look, this, this is not the way it is any longer. But not only that, in the pagan world it was that way. You don't have to do all of those things any longer. In the heathen world, in the Jewish world, you come to Christ. You don't have to keep all of those rules. You don't have to watch your calendar closely. You're a child. You're free. You've experienced this, this sonship that makes you have access to God all the time. You don't worry any longer. It's a beautiful picture of that. Verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Wow. Look at chapter 3, verse 4 in Galatians. Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain, he says? Paul's question, are you, have I done all these things? I thought you were the real deal. I thought you truly knew the Lord. I thought you were going to walk with Him. Did you, he said, but not only that, you suffered because you embraced this Gospel. You suffered at the hands of this world. And how could you, how could you have done that? He's kind of shocking them in this. Notice what happens in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. And just kind of turn over there in verse eight and nine. He's going to say, you know, don't believe this false message. He says the message he gave them was this gospel message, and don't believe any other false thing. He says, but if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. 
He is afraid that they're going to embrace something, a gospel that will not save, and it will be in vain. It will be wasted. It will be useless. Turn to chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. He's worried that they who, who proclaimed Christ, who said, I'm following Christ, might fall away and as a result be damned forever. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. He has to be saved by his law works and he'll never be able to do this. Notice what he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. If they continued to follow the pattern that they were on, they would be damned. What a scary thing. Paul is calling out to them and begging them to listen. Then look at verse 12 as we kind of move forward. Paul is going to remind them of their friendship and he's going to wonder how could it be that they almost like might become foes here. Verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. Now here's the thing. If you studied Paul's life, he was the most religious, I mean religious person. He was a Jew to the nth degree. Philippians chapter 3, we're not going to read all that, but I just I want you to remind yourself of this. I mean, Paul's going to go through, when he unpacks his pedigree, when he says, hey, this is who I am, this is all my background, this is all the things that I've done, it blows your mind. And he says, listen, become as I am, for I became as you are. Paul, when he showed up there, he, he acted like a Gentile. He had not held on to any of these things. He counted those as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And so it's just important. I think Paul's going to say this and he's going to reiterate over and over. He says, I, I really did become like you. I'm not living by those things any longer. So how could you, who were never like me, turn into these things and start following those? The very person who would be most apt to follow these rules is me. And I laid those aside and in no way followed those before you. So now you follow me. Follow me as I'm living the way in freedom that God designed. Follow me. And so he lays those things out. I think it's important to see it. Now I would say one other thing too. When Paul went into an area, sometimes it feels like when he went to a Jewish area, he kind of followed some of those customs to an extent. When he went into a Gentile area, he acted differently. There is something of Paul becoming all things to all people. I do think I used to struggle with whether or not that's important in some ways, but I think there's an aspect of contextualizing like the gospel, where when you come to certain areas, you understand there's certain thoughts about things. Uh, and, and we need to understand that when we're talking to people and investing in them. I think sometimes in the church for a long time that we almost we stayed with like a 50s mentality of evangelism, where we would, we would kind of under, we would think everybody knows who God is. Everybody understands what sin is. We don't live in that kind of world any longer. We live in a post-Christian world, kind of. We are going to have to define who God is. Define what sin is. People don't necessarily know that. Most did not grow up in a home where Christianity was central. They went to church irregularly. The church didn't teach the Bible well. And so you have to kind of go back and say, okay, we've got to think through where our culture is and what's going on. Paul, I think, understood that. He read that. He grasped that. And he sought to win those people where they were. Not try to convert them to himself, but to convert them to Christ. 
When he says, follow my example, I don't think it's like, follow my example in a silly way, in a religious way where it's just, follow, be just like me. Following my example as he followed Christ, insofar as he was following Christ, become like him. I just think it's important to see that as we think through this. Now, verse 13 and 14. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached to you the gospel or to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So what, what's he saying? Paul's going to go back to this experience. I showed up. Now in that culture, man, when you showed up with some kind of ailment, and you're like trying to speak about the Gospel or God or those kind of things, that a lot of times they thought you, had, you were like demon-possessed. Because how could someone come in, from what I understand, like if they came in and they're not healthy and robust and powerful, how could that go down? How could they really be in good with God? And so oftentimes they would look down upon those people with a physical ailment and might run them out of town. But they didn't do that. Not only that, they somehow began to, to, to like, instead of scorn and despise him, they treated him well. And even though it was a trial, so evidently whether that was like taking care of him, or whether that was like in the culture, people like, what are you doing listening to this crazy man who's probably possessed? Look how messed up he is. How could you believe him and, you know, and, 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 and listen to what he says? So some level, they begin to treat him so well. Notice how they treat him. As an angel of God. See, instead of saying he has a demon, they treat him as an angel of God, as one sent from God, as one sent down from heaven to speak to them this message. As even Christ Jesus Himself, they saw Him as this messenger, and the message was so beautiful, it was just as if Jesus came. In reality, His words are so close, Paul will speak the truth about Jesus as he brings that to them, and they experience that with great joy and blessing, and they were overwhelmed with joy as God did it. Verse 15, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now some people say, this must be the ailment. Paul must have been like part blind or something when he shows up. We don't know that for sure. Uh, there's not a real clear understanding of whether that is true. But, but the eyes for people, from what I understand, the old in this time period, they were the most treasured possession. He's saying, you, you would have taken out your eyes and given, you would gouge them out and given them to me. It's, it's kind of hyperbolic. He's speaking... He's kind of overstating this thing to say, this is how you treated me. This is how you loved me. This is how you cared for me. You would have done anything for me. What do we learn, I guess, as you're thinking about this, what do we learn about illness in this passage? I think it's always good to ask this question. What, what do we learn about that? What do we learn? God used it to send, listen, to send Paul to these people. God, God is in His illness. God's going to send Him. With God, for instance, your cancer, heart disease, whatever you make the list, they're a part of God's plan. He's, he's orchestrating the events of Paul's life to bless these people. We would say God is in charge of your health, bringing about the, the, the hope for the nations even with Paul. And so I just think it's important to see nothing's wasted. I, I, there was um, some years ago, I had a friend, his name was Robert Bunning, did his funeral not too long ago. He was just a, a, a really just a, a drunkard, you would say, his whole life just about God radically saved him. 
he was a construction guy and he was always witnessing to people. And one day he was doing some work on top of his church. He falls like 20 or 30 feet, shatters his leg, goes to the hospital, ends up contracting like a, um, a staph infection, spends two years in the hospital. It's a horrendous thing, goes through enormous amount of pain. The rest of his life was like that. But while he was there in the hospital, I mean, there was witnessing going on. I mean, people were coming to know the Lord and hearing the truth of the gospel. God was using him in a mighty way. He continued to use him for, I mean, throughout his life in that way, because of even because of this wound, this struggle, this physical struggle that he had. Now, the other thing is, is Paul shows us that the word of God is what's most important. You know, sometimes in our world, in our culture, uh, personality, education, they're really important to us. Appearance, what the minister's like, the, the messenger. People really love to, like, I don't know, inflate people if they're popular. And they think, oh man, this is just like this guy. You know, I just look up to him. I think he's so great. They inflate his personality. All of those things are going on. But what we see here is that Paul is, is speaking the truth to them. Paul comes to them with a gospel. He is not very appealing to, to the world. The world would not necessarily treasure him, and he brings them the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It's a word of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they would be found faithful. And so it's about the, the, the stewardship of bringing the word. When Paul was speaking to a young minister, Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearance in His kingdom, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching, but having their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul's message was not necessarily appealing. His, his, his demeanor, his, his, um, even when they'll talk about his speaking abilities, his, his constitution, his body, uh, the, his, his illness, all those things say he's not the guy that you're going to put up as a poster boy. But God's going to use him and He's going to speak these truths and God is going to use him mightily. We are to be people of the truth. Verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul's going to confront, he's going to say, you embrace me so quickly and now it seems like you're rejecting me because I'm telling you the truth. Because I'm giving you the truth. How could you do this? You, you treasured that. I don't know if you could look back in your life and you remember, uh, actually not too long ago, um, Carl and Travis were over at my house. We had a little fire and we were hanging out together and we were talking about those moments in life. Some of us at different times in life, like for the first time, we, we sit under somebody that speaks the truth in a way that makes sense in a way that's clear, in a way that's convicting, in a way that's encouraging, in a way that overwhelms you with the Gospel. For the first time, you, you hear it and you're just overwhelmed over and over and over again. Uh, you might be able to look back in your life where there are times where immediately after church you would want to talk to your husband or wife about what you learned 
Or you sat down and said, I'm going to read more of my Bible because I heard the truth this morning and I want to understand that more clearly. Or maybe you said, man, as more and more I learn, I've got this co-worker who's never understood the Gospel. And I'm so passionately committed to that. And I'm so in love with that. And I'm so overwhelmed by that. I want to speak this truth to them. We should pray by the Spirit's power that we would cherish reading, hearing, and applying the truth. You know what? When you get dull towards that, when, when, you, when it becomes just kind of an, another time, it's just another event, maybe coming to church. When that gets that way, you know what's happening? You're cherishing something more than the truth. You are loving something more. You're believing that something else will bring more fulfillment and more joy. You would rather feast on something else. As John Piper once said, the white bread of the world is more appealing to you you would let rather stuff yourself with, maybe you might say, you know, you think about a kid sometimes sitting there and if you put before them M&Ms and they're gobbling them up, you would rather eat something that has no sustaining value, that doesn't cultivate your heart towards godly things. See, see, they had this moment where they were loving and cherishing both the truth and the truth teller. But somewhere along the way, they begin to move away from that. They begin, begin to run back to the past. They begin to believe the philosophy of worldly religion. That satisfaction comes in something other than God, His Word, His Gospel. What He has given us to bring us hope and joy. It is a danger for us when something else grabs your attention and promises you greater fulfillment and you begin to believe it, and the evidence is by what you put into your life. It's the evidence. I do what I love. I think about what I love. I live for what I love. So I just think it's important that we see that because sometimes false teaching comes in through the church. Sometimes it's cloaked in Christianity. And sometimes it's just the world system. It's teaching us stuff. And sometimes we can just gobble it up and we cherish it and we hope we don't miss it and we'll sacrifice for it. It's dangerous. And so they are falling and struggling with this. And Paul is going to come to them and say, remember, remember, Remember what it was like. Stir the affections towards good things. Remember how excited you are, how filled with joy you were, and how you received me in that moment. Verse 17 and 18, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. These flattery teachers come in telling them, all these things that will bring them maybe greater joy and fulfillment, but really what they're doing is saying, you're outsiders, you must inflate us in your eyes. You must serve, serve us in some way. These false teachers are flattering so they can make them feel like outsiders so that they're going to need them. And Paul is confronting that. Verse 18, and I put this in the study guide this week, Verse 18 is a little bit difficult for me to understand, but Tom Schreiner says it this way, Zeal, of course, is a commendable quality as long as it is directed to the right object. 
If someone is zealous for what is good, one's life will be pleasing to God. In other words, Paul was not jealous for his own reputation. If others had arrived in Galatia preaching the Gospel and strengthened the Galatians in the faith, he would have rejoiced. But these people are not doing this. Verse 19 and 20, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you and now change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. This is a, Paul is overwhelmed with, with, with worry and anguish over them. Because he, he's worried almost like they need to be, Christ needs to be birthed in them again. There, there's this anguish because he wants to see them love and cherish Christ and hold on to the gospel. And he's worried they may not. They may fall away. They may embrace the false teaching of this world. They may hope in something else. And Paul's going to say that this pressure on him, it weighs on him. If, if you really love the church and you've been in leadership, you know that struggle. If you're a community group leader and you're praying, God, we want this to be reality in the hearts of the people or, or you're in my place or whatever, or with Mike, we, we pray for you that God would cause you to love Him. That Christ would be fully formed in you. It's, this is speaking not only of the new birth, but it has this idea, you know how a baby it starts out as an embryo and it grows into a child? He, it, there's an element where this is pointing to, to the fullness of what it means to be Christ-like. That your life would be radically transformed all of your life in Christ. He's worried. He wishes that it could be different. He wishes that he, but he's so perplexed, he doesn't know what is taking place. And so, as we conclude today, just to think through this, we should make it our ambition to remember our conversion. How delighted we were first when we learned the truth of God. We, we should go back to those things and seek to stir that up in our hearts again. It's so easy to become cold. We should not forget the wonder of the Gospel. Part of Galatians is part of, should be driving you back to the Gospel and saying, this is my hope. This is what it means to have the benefits of the Gospel. This is what it means to be adopted in God's family. This is tremendous. This is what it means to experience that. We need to go back to that over and over. As I was thinking about this week, I read a quote by John Newton. If you all know, he wrote Amazing Grace. He was a he was a pastor later in his life, but early on he was, he was a, a slave trader. And, and, he, and he remembered that the rest of his life, but he realized as a slave trader, he was also a slave. And it, 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 he thought about it over and over. One of the things that he would leave in his office to remember him, remember where he once was so that he could kind of get, get refocused was a passage in Deuteronomy, verse, chapter 15, verse 15. It says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this day. See, we have to say that. We are to remember your sons. We are to remember it and treasure it. We are to remember that we have trusted in Jesus and are out of bondage and we have life in Him. And if there are some of you here today, there may be some who have never believed the Gospel. You may have heard it here at the church. Hopefully you have over and over. But maybe today is the day where I would say you need to repent and believe the Gospel. Today is the day to do that. We do not know our future. 
But the Gospel message is that that Christ came and He gave His life for us so that we could be free. We were born slaves to sin, born under the law, but Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law, to redeem us from sin, and to transfer into His kingdom so that we could be sons. So I encourage you today, if you do not know Christ, as we take the Lord's Supper, you would be reminded that our hope is in Him, in the body and blood of Christ given for us and broken for us. Let's pray together. Thanking You, Lord, that You have given us the most treasured possession. I pray we would treasure it. It is so easy to love the success of this world, to cherish success in so many things, to to try to, to put our Christianity into the same kind of thought as, as what the world thinks it means to be acceptable, to be accepted, to be loved, to be respected. All those things in the world tell us that you do that by your own hands. And the Gospel comes screaming in that you have no hope by your own hands. You're more damned the more that you strive by your own hands to save yourself. May we see that, Lord. May we cherish the wonder of being children, your children, being sons of God with all the privileges that come. In Christ's name, amen.